Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Christopher Russo, who is a research fellow with the Discovery Institute and a writer with City Journal. Christopher, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. I wanted to have you on because, uh, you know, there has been a lot of discussion in the news uh, and a lot of stuff regard, you know, some of it a little disturbing uh, regarding uh, race and the workplace and schools. And I, of course, you know, I'm very concerned about uh, working conditions and the rights of employees. Uh, and also, you know, I, I think we are having a grand conversation about uh, race and combating racism or whatever in the country, uh, some of it more productive than others. And I, I know that you, this is an issue that you've written a lot about and have uncovered some different incidents. So I'd like to talk about that. But before we get to that, it might be good if you would just give us a little bit for our listeners about your background, where you come from, and and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I um, you know have a bit of a different background than a lot of my uh, friend, friends and colleagues, new friends and colleagues. You know, I spent uh, more than 10 years directing documentaries for PBS, uh, sold a film for Netflix a few years ago. Uh, and other international broadcasters. And, you know, as a younger person was definitely on the left side of the political spectrum. So uh, that changed, of course, probably one of the reasons why we're talking and and uh, over the course of about 10 years moved uh, away from the filmmaking career. Uh, I directed my last feature film, uh, which broadcast on PBS last year. And uh, I'm now working much more uh, in the political world. And, it's been an interesting shift. I think that I learned a lot about uh, politics, business, society, media, um, and how people in that world uh, think and do creative work. And then becoming uh, shifting towards the conservative side, and now starting to do research and public policy and, and journalism, bring a different kind of view to all these issues and. You know, have have adopted and adapted some of the best stuff that I learned previously in my old world uh, to this world, and then I think it's been um, just kind of a fun process to see how that works and how it's different. And I think when I'm in a conservative crowd, I, it's it's uh, ideologically and intellectually I get along great, um, but I have noticed like a different aesthetic sense or a different uh, kind of creative mindset. Uh, yeah, well, that maybe that's a polite way to put it. I don't know. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a big, big topic. I thought you know uh, one natural place to start might be with uh, certainly you know in my consciousness, uh, some of this started uh, came into my consciousness a little bit last fall when the then Trump administration had an executive order regarding. Uh, so-called critical race theory used in diversity trainings and other things like that for the for the federal government. Uh, so maybe 
maybe you could just tell us a little bit what what is critical race theory well it 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 means different things to different people and that's kind of one of the big debates right now that i think is pretty interesting and and fun to take part in um, in the very narrow sense, if you look at it uh, academically speaking or in the conceptualization of the inventors and practitioners of critical race theory, it's a specialized academic discipline that that argues uh, that when you look at American society, you should look at look at it through the lens of race and racism, uh, which is pervasive and deserves uh, scrutiny and casts doubt on, American institutions that profess positive values and virtues, but um, under the surface, these values and institutions provide a camouflage for racism and exploitation. That I think that's probably how the critical race theorists, like in academia, would 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 present it. Um, but critical race theory, as it's applied, becomes something very different and. The application of critical race theory's basic basic concepts and constructs changes once it's adapted in diversity training uh, materials or school K through twelve curricula or HR training modules or you know, kind of pop social science books from Robin DiAngelo or Ibram Kendi. Uh, and then it also looks very different when those ideas are adapted and repackaged for the language of street protests. So, you know, you can see a direct line, trace a direct line from high-minded ideals and critical race theory, academic literature um, that sound and look and feel one way. Uh, but then you listen to some of the speeches from uh, Minneapolis or uh, Seattle or Portland during the George Floyd riots, and you see how those ideas influence even the most radical and destructive political movements. And my own view, and and uh, for which I've taken some criticism, which is fine, is that you know we have an obligation to define, to to contest the definitions of words. And I think traditionally the left has been much more advanced uh, linguistically than the right. Um, and this is a huge reason for a sequence of failures on the right. And, and you know, I, I contest the definition of critical race theory. I don't think it should be limited to what the academics in 1995 said it was, but actually the concrete manifestations and outcomes of those theories as they're practiced today should also be included in that definition. Yeah. So, what uh, what are some of these manifestations? Like, maybe maybe it would be helpful to give a, you know some examples of what we're talking about here, uh, you know, in, in concrete concrete terms. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll share some examples from school curricula. So, uh, school curricula, school trainings, and and this is one specific issue area that I think can be has analogs in government agencies and corporate and public policy. You know, I, I did a series of reports um, beginning at the end of last year in, in, in December. And this, you know, can run you through some of the, the key kind of takeaways is, you know, taking first graders in Cupertino, California, and then forcing them to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities, and then rank themselves according to their power and privilege. So, 
taking intersectionality, teaching it to five-year-olds, and then splitting them into oppressor and oppressed groups. Um, uh, or a teacher training program in Springfield, Missouri, not exactly like a a, a, a woke progressive area, but actually a Midwestern uh, city, mid-sized city, where they were taking middle school teachers and then telling, forcing them to locate themselves on this chart that, that was an oppression matrix that said, if you are a white male, English speaking, able-bodied, uh, heterosexual Christian, you are automatically an oppressor, inherently an oppressor. And if you're a woman, person of color, disabled, uh, LGBTQ, religious minority, you are by definition, by virtue of those identity categories, a member of the oppressed class. And then forcing them to reckon with their own, you know, what the what the charts called their covert white supremacy. So they're the things that they do in daily life that that are, you know, supposedly unconscious expressions of white supremacist um, thinking or behavior. And another two quick examples, like uh, Philadelphia public schools, uh, they took fifth graders, they had them celebrate black communism, and then simulate an Angela Davis black power rally to free Angela Davis from prison. Um, And, you know, signs like, you know, uh, dump Trump and very political, like they were actually training these kids to do these black power rallies and, and, and celebrate communism. Um, and then and one other example, Davis, uh, as I, as I recall, Angela Davis was a, a big deal, uh, thinker activist back in the sixties and seventies. I think she was in prison because she gave a gun to someone that was used to kidnap a judge and the judge got shot and died. Uh, is that more more or less accurate? Uh, That's right. Yeah, and she was a famous ally of the Black Panther Party, and then also a famous member of the Communist Party USA. And uh, Angela Davis is still alive and kicking. She's actually still influential in left wing circles, and um, and is and and and, and you know she, she's a good example of where this ideology comes from. It's it's rooted in the kind of. Black Panther, Third World Liberation Front, Communist Party USA, um, ideologies of the late 1960s that went dormant for a while. Um, They were uh, kind of defeated ideologically by the civil rights movement um, and then then really defeated practically with the victory of of Richard Nick, the first presidential victory of Richard Nixon, promising a return to law and order, um, signaling this big shift away from the politics of radicalism in American life. But those folks didn't go away. And actually they became very influential within academia. And then they they hatched these new iterations of their old ideas as critical race theory or equity or diversity and inclusion. And part of the game that they play is that they have they realize that you know promising communism or neo-Marxism or revolution uh, isn't really palatable to most Americans, but they can repackage those main ideas and main threads as diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, this kind of Orwellian language that has very soft, very kind of empathetic, very um, pleasing sounding nouns that are also very abstract. But then when you look at the 
the materials and the literature and the modules and the curricula, you realize, oh no, this is, you know, culturally responsive teaching is basically the same stuff that was part of the radical movements of the 1960s. So I know that a lot of these ideas have been percolating in academia for a long time, but they seem to have kind of uh, burst onto the scene in the in the wider world uh, quite quickly and quite recently. To what do you attribute that? Uh, you know, how is it that you know these these uh, ideas and notions seem to be so popular and pervasive, not only in you know on college campuses or liberal cities like San Francisco, but also, you know, places like Springfield, Missouri, or the United States Armed Forces, or, uh, you know, the the Coca-Cola Corporation, right? Places that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of as all that favorably disposed to communism or left-wing ideas or, or any of this stuff. Right. So like, what, what do you, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, it's complex. And all of those institutions that you lift have a different set of incentives for them to adopt these kind of ideologies and also a different set of expressions that they end up internalizing. And I think a lot of it is, uh, driven by media. Um, the media, took the keywords um, of critical race theory, white supremacy, inequity, you know, the whole series, intersectionality, et cetera. And you see these charts measuring the usage in the New York Times. And in 2014, 2013, 2014, 2015, they just start, the chart just goes like completely vertical. Um, And all of a sudden, these, these terms are just everywhere all the time. So there was a media contagion that was, uh, that really just overwhelmed the discourse, overwhelmed the language with these words. I don't know. I, I can't tell you for sure. It's something I've thought a lot about and ha- don't have any hard and fast conclusions. But one hypothesis for one potential cause is that, um, and something that I've seen tracked in the kind of activist work that I've read, is a disillusionment with the Obama administration. And in t- 2008, it was very, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was incredible, frankly, even for someone who said, ah, not, not, not necessarily aligned politically on a policy level, but the energy surrounding the first Obama term was this transformational, optimistic, hopeful, this, this, uh, this promise of transcending racial division. And, uh, I think was, uh, was authentic and, and truly inspiring for so many people, but by by the closing term time, people had become disillusioned, and the left activists in particular just started turning on Obama. I even have one left activist, very famous, probably the most famous uh, uh, Black Lives Matter activist in Seattle. You know, recently, as you know, Barack Obama was white supremacy in blackface. I mean just like the most horrific uh, insults thrown at the former president. And, and, but I think is indicative of the way that people felt some disillusionment and that felt that they, that this, the Obama vision of, of, I think, transcendence, reconciliation, unity. Um, there was a, a sense in the left, uh, 
that I could detect of disappointment, disillusionment, and a turn towards more radical ideas. Um, you pair that with this ready-made vocabulary from critical race theory, um, and then you just dump, you know, gasoline onto the fire with then Trump being the, you know, the 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 ideological opponent or enemy, and then all of those things together, uh, I think gets us a pretty good way. People also say social media. People also say video of things like police shootings. I think those are two important factors that help accelerate this trend. But um, my sense is it's really just a, a, a political shift on the left. How does this fit in with uh, employment law? So we, of course, you know, since the sixties and the civil rights act, uh, it's illegal to discriminate in hiring and other employment practices on the basis of race and other criteria. And uh, some, you know, some of these examples that I've seen seem to kind of uh, uh, skirt the line of that at at the very least. Uh, Certainly if you're trying to like, um, you know, essentialize people into racial groups and, and categories or whatever. Uh, I mean, how, how, like, how did, how does that fit in, you know, cause how does that fit into the, the broader context of employment discrimination law and rules? Well, you know, this is a really interesting question and it's a, it signals a big shift and the, the courts, frankly, this stuff is so new. The courts haven't really weighed in. Um, I'm actually organized. I've organized a coalition. We have three lawsuits filed. I think we'll have another half dozen by the summertime. Um, and we're coming to the courts with exactly these questions. Uh, is it permissible for Coca-Cola to instruct employees to quote, be less white, um, is it permissible for a school district like in Buffalo, New York, to uh, tell students in their official curriculum documents, uh, all white people perpetuate systemic racism? Um, is it permissible for um, uh, to compel the speech of school kids to, uh, to say, you know, so-and-so in the classroom is inherently an oppressor? Uh, these are all questions that I, I feel confident that are violations of the law. Um, and these lawsuits are really going to look at, um, three categories. Uh, one is a first amendment claim. So when a public institution such as a school compels speech that violates, uh, the conscience of students, um, I think a lot of this will fall under that and get, uh, basically outlawed or, or, or in practice, uh, you know, uh, stopped by the courts. Uh, there's a 14th Amendment claim where um, if you are treating people unequally on the basis of race, that's a, a violation of uh, the Equal Protection Clause. And there's also civil rights, Title VI and Title VII, especially in, in government agencies or, 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 or agencies receiving federal funds, um, s- s- treating people differently on the basis of those protected categories is, a, is illegal. So when the King County Library, for example, ho- hosts racially segregated uh, employee training programs with, you know, they even put, they have images where they hung up signs, uh, people of color and people who are white on, 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 on separate doors leading into separate rooms. 
Yeah. Um, and by the way, like, uh, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. you know, I have a, I have a friend, uh, who is a person of color, uh, married to a, uh, his wife is white. And they said that, uh, you know, they've encountered a problem with some of this stuff is that, uh, you know, uh, for their kids, what are they supposed to put down? <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it can be like kind of confusing. So that are they, are they, you know, as the parents, uh, is, is the wife supposed to go to the white parents event and the husband to the people of color parents event, or do they both go to one or to the other? It's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not, clear. not yeah. the most, you know, most significant issue, but it is, it is kind of strange. It is. And, you know, it, this is it, even for my own family, my own kids, my kids are half Asian, which is even more complicated because it's like sometimes in the literature, they say Asians are in the white category or they're white adjacent or honorary whites. I mean, these are actual academic terms that they use to categorize Asian and the white, white majority. Or are Asians people of color? Are they minorities? Are they a member of an oppressed group? That's also in some of the literature. And I think even with these late, the, the shooting, for example, um, you had some interesting stuff happening that plays right into this critical race theory idea of intersectionality, where for about two months, there was a slew of stories from New York and West Coast cities of African-American men randomly beating up, robbing, and in some cases, killing elderly Asian people. And it was like, we can't talk about the the race of the perpetrator. Um, and then there was a media campaign to frame it as white supremacy. And it's like, totally disconnected from any reality of what's happening and why there's conflict in these between these groups in these specific neighborhoods where they're geographically adjacent. And, and then you had this like a horrific shooting of the white suspect killing people at the massage parlors in Georgia, I believe. And then it was like, all right, back to now, um, you know, Asians are the oppressed group and white supremacy. It's like, it's like the categorizations can be flipped fundamentally depending on the narrative and depending on the needs of the, the rationalization. And uh, that's where critical race theory gets you. It's like, wait, we're going to break up families into separate groups because it's an interracial marriage. I mean, it's like, sometimes I feel like this stuff is like with the, the, the pictures where it's like room for whites, whites only room for people of color. It's like, this is a 1955 water fountain picture and it's really horrific. And how is it that the most progressive people are just loving this? I mean, it really, it, 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 it continues, even though I've worked on this stuff for a long time now, it continues to really boggle my mind. So Josiah raised the labor laws and so forth. And obviously we've touched on schools. Where, Where else is this likely to come into play for, a normal person who's not, you know, absolutely consumed by policy and politics, where is this going to affect their life? And obviously there's the aspect of, you know, persuading other people around them, you know, what to think about critical race theory. But beyond that, you know, assuming you're, you know, still talking to sort of a, let's just say a middle-class family, and this is sort of being presented to them, they're being confronted by it. Where are they going to be confronted by it and what can they do about it? Because it seems like this is this isn't like we're going to pass, you know, one piece of federal legislation up or down. I don't think 
where all are we going to be confronted by this? I mean, the short answer is everywhere. Um, it's going to be in your workplace. Um, it's going to be in your child's school. Um, I'm told even among uh, Protestants, it will be in your church. In some churches, uh, they're trying to adopt these these ideas into the into the uh, religious community. And then also, I, I think very crucially in public policy. And this is the big kind of hundred thousand, you know, million dollar question. Let's say million dollars for inflation. Um, they're trying now, and I've been following it and and quite interested in what they're doing is they're trying to take these critiques, right? It's critical race theory. It's a critique. They're trying to take these this set of critiques and then formulate it into public policy. We're seeing it in states like California. We're seeing it in local governments in places like Seattle. And now we're seeing it in the White House under the Biden administration. Um, and they're trying to basically translate the tenets of critical race theory and other related ideologies into public policy. And this is where it's going to get really interesting to see how it works. Like, and little stories come up, like, um, some guy, like a doctor in Texas was giving vaccines to people that he knew and they were deemed to giving too many of them to Pakistanis and Indians. Uh, and they're, you know, try to fire the guy, uh, for in, in inequities or Oakland is doing a universal basic income pilot program but it's, it's um, only for black and Hispanic residents. So no white, poor white families are allowed to apply. Um, and it's this, these are all kind of small, or, or, or even the New York mayor is having a true, truth and reconciliation commission modeled on South Africa for, uh, for his uh, city or Evanston, Illinois. I think they're saying- for his, for his handling of COVID? Is that- <laughs> no, no, no. For I don't know for what. Like for for just racism as a historical, you know, injustice, and uh, it's not really clear like what the. It's not really clear how it works, but 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 these are all these initial attempts to translate race theory into policy, and um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I th- I think most of it is some of it's okay, some of it's good, some of it is not okay, some of it's very bad. But it is interesting to watch them actually have to grapple with being in a position of institutional power because they could just, since 1967 or whatever, they could just complain about the establishment and the man and the institutions and everything, blah, blah, blah. Now it's a different situation. They're actually in positions of power and control over the institutions. Now their ideas actually have to be normative. Now they have to be put into practice. Now they have to be... um, uh, you know, turned into concretes. And then the critical factor is actually the other way around, um, which is something that I'm trying to lead the way on. This is going to be sort of an odd question because I don't, I don't mean to lead this to, uh, you know, to sort of prompt you to, to, to give a, an answer that we need to engage in activism, but what's a normal person to do? Uh, because I mean, if this is coming at, at you from every direction, there's you have to pick your battle. You can't you can't on every front at you know every hour of the day be fighting this exhausting battle. Where's where's the best time spent? And uh, you know, and I'm not. And it's sort of sort of an unfair question, but I love asking unfair questions. You know, what, what's a normal person to do in a situation like this? Where where can they actually, you know, push back reasonably and and 
graciously, if you will? No, it's not an unfair question. It's a great question, and, and it has a very clear answer. Um, you know, obviously, folks like me, this is like my professional, you know, this is my vocation as well. So I have a lot of time uh, to devote to it and resources. So, you know, on a policy side, on a um, uh, on a legal and lawfare side, there are institutions that are going to start picking this up. And but those efforts, whether it's legislation or lawsuits, are really going to be uh, ineffective and um, unimportant if there's not a grassroots citizen and community-led analysis and reckoning and pushback against these ideas in within local institutions. And what I've seen is on the negative side is people are just scared. People are terrified to push back, even if you have a majority or a strong majority of people who say, wow, this is really crazy. I don't think that we should be teaching our kids this and, you know, private school X. Um, people are, well, I don't want to jump out on this issue. It's a racial issue. It's seems to, you know, put me at risk for getting canceled or denounced or mobbed or fired. So they just remain quiet. Um, I think, I think though that that's kind of needs to stop. People actually need to start speaking up and, I think there's a shift there, there. There seems to be a shift in momentum on that, and I've documented a number of successful pushback campaigns uh, against these ideas and policies within local institutions. And one really interesting story that I, I try to talk about as much as possible, because I think it's a really interesting angle on it, um, and really successful, frankly, as a case study is Chinese American and Indian Americans um, are have been the most successful in pushing back and stopping this stuff uh, in California, in Virginia, in uh, Washington state, in other, all over, all over the country. These are groups, you know, not everyone, but in, in general um, that have uh, a, a faith in meritocracy um, and in the Chinese American um, community in particular, from my reporting, people have told me over and over, we also know what happens when 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 countries fall into a cultural revolution small c small r um and they've fought back hard they've fought back um uh very uh you know with a lot of savvy and they've been able to to really stop this stuff uh, in their local communities and i think it's a good inspiration and model for all of us so uh, just as a final question we often ask guess uh for movie or tv recommendations related to the topic however in your case since you have actually uh made some movies uh i thought uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about you know, what's the what's the favorite uh film or documentary that you made what's what was it about Oh, sure. Well, probably my, my latest one. Um, uh, it's called America Lost. And I look at uh, life in three of America's poorest cities, uh, one white working class neighborhood in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, uh, a, a black uh, urban neighborhood in um, Memphis, Tennessee, and then a, a kind of Latino and multiracial community in Stockton, California. And I follow these people, these characters uh, through the course of their lives over about three years. Um, looking at their challenges and hopes and aspirations and uh, 
Um, it, it broadcasts on PBS last year. It's up on Amazon. You can pay for it. Or uh, if you are listening, um, there's also, I'm just letting people watch it for free because it's uh, want people to see it. And the, the link to do that is just americalostfilm.com slash premiere. All right. Our guest today has been Christopher Russo. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.